0: Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, 1 to 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, And carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes rather speaking the love speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Be to
1: God. Well, thank you so much, Sharon, for reading God's word for us so well, and Elder Joseph for leading us so well in worship. Hi, if I've not met you, my name is Joel. I'm the associate pastor, serving so here at One Covenant Church. And now we're in the middle of a series on the topic. Of deacons, and for today, we'll be looking at the issue or the topic of serving. And as we come to God's word this morning, let us ask for His blessing. So let us come to God now in the time of prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you, we acknowledge that we are spiritually poor people. Father, we recognize that apart from your grace, we have no access to your throne. And Father, I pray that as we hear from you this morning, may you remind us of our own poverty, but would you remind us as well of the richness of your grace that is found in Jesus Christ. And I pray that this would change the way we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we entrust this time to you and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we are in the middle of a topical series on deacons, and it's a four-week series looking at the roles and responsibilities of deacons. Now, we are halfway through the series, and you might have this question. You know, why are we spending one half of the series talking about something that's not directly related to the deacons, the topic of deacons? You know, why are we not talking about the roles and the responsibilities of deacons? And let me just say that be patient. We will get there uh, from next week onwards as we look at the specific passages that talks about the role and the responsibilities of deacons. But before we do that, it's actually important for us to understand what the Bible as a whole says about serving. Now, last week, we looked at, you know, Pastor Zed helped us to look at, you know, God's heart for the poor. And as believers, as Christians, we are called to reflect God's heart for the poor. And you remember that what Pastor Z said, that the poor is not just referring to those who are materially poor, but referring fundamentally to the spiritual poverty that all of us have. Now, if this is the case, if this is the case that actually all of us are poor, then our relationships with one another have to be modeled after this reality. And the way we do so is by serving one another in the household of God. And and we do so as poor people serving poor people. And we need to recognize that the call to serve is not just limited to the church leaders. It's not just limited to the deacons. It's not just limited to the elders of the church. And not just limited to the pastors. And instead, there's a call for believers, for all believers to serve. Now, in the 16th century Reformation, the reformer, Martin Luther, he recovered something that was very important, a very important doctrine, and that's the doctrine of the priesthood of the believers. And what he's seeking to do with that is this, he's really just articulating what we find in 1 Peter chapter 2, when it talks about believers as a royal priesthood. And what he's saying is this, that the idea of serving is not just limited to those who are in the clergy. It's not just limited to clergymen, but rather even the laity is involved in the, in the task of serving. So it's not, he's not saying that we should totally eliminate the idea of priesthood, but he's saying what he's trying to articulate is the idea that all of us are called to serve. As long as we are a believer in Jesus Christ, all of us has this responsibility to serve. And one key passage that actually highlights this is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Now, prior to this, you know, the Apostle Paul spent the first three chapters expounding on the doctrines of gospel grace. And these are doctrines that are foundational for our understanding of salvation. So, for instance, Paul talks about God's eternal plan of redemption, and he talks about the fact that salvation comes to us by grace through faith. And it's not through works, but it's by God's grace and grace alone and through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And then Paul talks about, you know, the tearing down of the wall of hostility that exists between the Jews and the Gentiles. And all of these doctrines are foundational. They are fundamental to our understanding of salvation. And as Paul moves to the second half of the letter of Ephesians with chapter 4, Paul shifts in his focus to talk about the implications of the gospel, the practical implications of the gospel. Now I have the opportunity and the privilege to oversee our youth group and we started looking at the book of Ephesians this year and in our first session I... I mentioned to the youths, you know, how we can understand the book of Ephesians as a whole. And the way I explained it was this, that the first three chapters of Ephesians is about the gospel from the outside in. And the last three chapters is about the gospel from the inside out. It means that the first three chapters focuses on what God has done for us in salvation And then the last three chapters focuses on how we respond to this gospel of grace by living in step with the truth of the gospel. And if you look at at chapter 4, verse 1, Paul begins with the word, therefore. And so what he's saying is that what I'm about to say implies, is the implication of what, what we talked about prior to this. And the first thing that Paul focuses on, It's the corporate body of Jesus Christ, and it tells us how the body of Christ is being built up. And we'll see how God's care is reflected in the context of the church through serving one and other. So let's look at what our text has to say, and we'll do this in three points. We'll look at the basis of serving, we'll look at the means of serving, and the purpose of serving. So basis, means, and purpose So let's look at the first point. Now, Paul begins in verse 1 by urging the church to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. And the calling that he's referring to right here is their calling as believers. So they are to walk in a worthy manner. And how does this look like? Well, look at verses 2 to 3, and this is what Paul says. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are called to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and we need to recognize that this unity is not a bare unity. It's not a unity that comes from you know, having common interests or common backgrounds like common social economic backgrounds or educational backgrounds. That's not the unity that Paul is talking about. Well, rather, he's talking about the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's talking about spiritual unity. In fact, we can even say that it's spiritual with a capital S, spiritual unity. Unity. Now, the word for bond that Paul uses here is literally translated as fastener. Or if you're American, you would say fastener. But fastener, and that is something that holds clothing together, but is often used in a metaphorical sense, which means to hold a community together. And what Paul is saying here is this, that he recognizes that peace is necessary to hold the church together, that we need peace, that peace is necessary for church unity. And this is interesting in light of what he says at the end of chapter 4 of Ephesians. There's a contrasting list that he provided for us. He provided for us that is a contrast to what he says here in verses 2 to 3. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, he wants against several dangers. There's the danger of bitterness, there's the danger of wrath, of anger, of clamor, of slander, and malice in the church. And Paul understood that these are the very things that threaten the unity of the church. And these are the very things that lead to church divisions. And the opposite of all of this is peace, and it's peace that makes church unity possible. Now, what do we stand on to make this peace possible? Well, Paul actually tells us in verses 4 to 6. Now, look there with me. This is what it says. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What Paul is saying here is this, that peace comes from understanding the beliefs that undergird church unity. Now, what we have here in these verses is what some scholars believe is a basic creed, an ancient creed that captures the essence of the Christian faith. It's a creed that captures who we are and who we believe in. And notice that this is not a comprehensive confession. It's not a confession that we have in, say, the Westminster Confession of Faith but rather it's a creed that captures the essentials or the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And I want you to notice something. Notice that Paul uses the word one seven times in the span of these three verses. In fact, some scholars have noted the significance of the number seven in Judaism. And what Paul is doing here with this sevenfold repetition is intentionally pointing out just how important the number one is actually is now regardless the case i think it's very clear that what paul is trying to do here is to emphasize the idea the idea of oneness to emphasize the idea of unity and this means that we are not to polarize over things like secondary doctrines now, I'm not saying that there's not a room for us to discuss these doctrines. In fact, we can and we should discuss some of these important doctrines. But what I'm saying is that these doctrines are of relative importance. They're not unimportant, but they're of relative importance to the essentials of the Christian faith. They are of relative importance to the gospel. So we are not to be polarized over secondary doctrines, and neither should we be polarizing over personal preferences. Now, imagine you come to church, and we find ourselves dividing between people who wear jeans and people who wear black pants, and people are kind of looking at this. You know, what kind of witness is that to the world outside of us? Because at the end of the day, that is a matter of personal preference, and we allow ourselves to be divided by personal preferences, then we are undone. Now, it's interesting that, you know, this past week, I was listening to Prime Minister Lee's address in Parliament, and in, one, in a section of his speech, he talks about the importance of staying united. And it's very interesting because there's a striking similarity to what Paul is saying in these verses. So let me say, let me just read what, what he says. So he, talk, he was talking about, you know, the government's approach to differences, and the approach has always been to heal divisions, and this is what he says. Not grand posturing, not playing cultural or identity politics, not dividing and polarizing people. And he goes on to say this, in this new troubled world, divided, we stand no chance. We must do our best to see eye to eye on the fundamentals and try to appreciate each other's perspectives even if we cannot always agree. And as I was listening to that, I thought, wow, this is actually, it draws out some of the themes that Paul is speaking here, that the idea of unity is so, so important that unity, that peace, all of these things are actually very fragile and we should not presume upon these things and we should pursue all of this. And so, friends, as we consider what it means for us to reflect and to witness to God's love, let us take seriously the importance of unity. And it's a unity that stands on the truth and is held together by the Holy Spirit. Unity, Christian unity, is not optional. It's not an add-on to Christianity. In fact, it lies at the very heart of our faith. And without this unity, we're not able to give a unified message of God's love to the world around us. And so unity is the basis of serving one another in God's household. Now, how do we go about serving in this household? Now, this brings us to our second point on the means. And basically, what we find in this passage are two ways. We are to speak the truth in one another's lives, and we are to use our spiritual gifts to upbuild One another. Now you remember that verses 4 to 6 tells us about the, the foundational beliefs that we are to believe in. But at the same time, these are the very truths that we are called to speak to one another. So you look at verse 15 in the passage, Paul says that we are to speak the truth in love. Paul calls us to speak the truth in love. We are called to uphold the balance of truth and love. Now, to be honest, this is actually very difficult to achieve. In reality, it's very difficult to have this balance of truth and love because our own tendency is to lean towards one at the expense of the other. Now, on the one hand, you know, we can speak the truth, in an unloving way. And oftentimes, you know, this can seem like we are winning a battle. You know, we are winning in the name of fidelity to doctrine. But friends, let me just say this, that this is not winning the combat. This is actually being combative. Okay? You know, because at the heart of it, what it reveals to us, you know, when we are, you know, being so combative towards others in matters of doctrine, is that it actually reveals the pride that's underlying all of our hearts. There's a desire to want to be seen as right in the eyes of others. And what this means is that the manner in which we speak the truth is actually unimportant because at the end of the day, it's all about winning the verbal war. And so we don't really care about how we proclaim the truth, about how we speak the truth, and we find ourselves speaking in an unloving way manner. But on the other hand, there's the emphasis, that, there's an emphasis on love without the truth. Now, what this does is that it leads to a kind of sentimentalism, a sentimentalism that pervades our relationships. And what it does is this, it actually leaves us in denial about our very own flaws. If we are in relationships where we are not speaking the truth to one another, then what we are doing is that we're simply affirming one another. You know, we're not actually saying that, hey, you know what you're doing? That's not right. That is not right. What we are doing is that we are perpetuating the errors of one another, and it leaves us in denial about our very own flaws. And so these are two dangers that we are to avoid, and instead, what we are called to do is to speak the truth to one another in a loving manner. And what this looks like, it means speaking, but also listening, listening to one another, empathizing with one another, learn to appreciate where the person is actually coming from, and being patient with one another as well. Being patient because change is not something that just occurs overnight. We need to be patient. To one another. And this is how relationships grow and deepen. So this is the first way that we are called to serve one another, which is just to speak the truth in love. And second, we are called to use our spiritual gifts. And here, we actually get a glimpse of the diversity that is present in our unity. So let's look at verse 7 of the passage, and this is what Paul says. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, the grace that's in view here is not actually saving grace, but as some scholars put it, this is actually ministry grace. Ministry grace. In verse 8, you know, Paul says that these are actually gifts that are given to each one of us for the purpose of ministry. And notice that what Paul is saying here, he says that each one of us has received this. You know, each one of us, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, all of us has received this gifts, albeit in different ways. Now, how does this manifest in the life of the church? Well, let's look at verses 11 to 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, notice that there are different groups here. You have the apostles and the prophets. Now, most likely this refers to the same group that you find in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that forms the apostolic foundation of the church. And this means that the office of the apostles and the prophets, they do not continue after Christ has laid the groundwork for the church in the new covenant era. But then what you have are the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers. And this refers, very broadly speaking, to the leaders of the church in their different functions. And what is the role of all of these officers? Well, their roles are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that the leaders are gifted and they are called to equip every single believer so that they can be prepared for the work of ministry. And what this means is that, you know, all of the gifts that that we have all of those gifts are to be fostered and they are to be nurtured and they are done so through the equipping of done by the leaders. And this has a massive implication for all of us and something that I mentioned at the start of this sermon and that is ministry is not just for a select few people. That ministry is not just for a few people. Every one of us, we have a different role to play in the church of God. And just as we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that different body parts have different functions in the human body, so we, all of us, have a different role to play in the household of God. The gifts that have been given to us, they don't exist for them, for just for our own sake, but they exist for others. The gifts exist in service to the bigger body. Now the New Testament scholar, Clinton Arnold, he puts it this way, the purpose of this varied distribution is not to differentiate the individuals, but for each to contribute to the overall unity and growth of the body. And, friends, this is what spiritual gifts are meant for. They're not meant for our own selfish users, but they're actually meant for others. And, in fact, when we talk about spiritual gifts, you know, there's a way of looking at it that can actually be unhealthy. It's unhealthy when we take spiritual gift as a synonym for talent. There's a danger when we take spiritual gift as a synonym for talent, and this can lead to what one pastor calls the talent show approach to spiritual gifts. Now, what is this talent show approach? What it means is this, that we come before the church with our abilities and with our talents, and we come seeking to boast in our abilities. Hey, look at how great I am in playing, you know, the piano. You know, look at how great I am in doing all of these things. And the talent show approach is basically saying, is basically trying to put before others, you know, how great you are in a particular way. And the fact is that our own natural tendency is to is this desire to be recognized, to be acknowledged by other people. And we bring this very inclination into the church. Itself, and what this means is that there's a tendency to demonstrate our service in in a big way to be seen by other people, and if that's our view of serving, then what we're doing is that we're actually confusing two things. We're confusing serving with doing. We're we're confusing serving with mere doing. Now, doing is actually very easy. You know, if you ask me to, you know, put the chairs away, you know, I can. I'll just. Do it, because doing is very easy. What's more difficult is actually serving. In fact, I would say that serving is less about doing and more about being. That It's about being faithful in what we are called to do, and we do so from our hearts. And in this regard, faithfulness is actually more important than results. Now, let me expand a little bit on this. Think about... The parable of the talents. If you're familiar with the parable of the talents, and you can find it in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. Now, in that parable, what we're given are three servants who were each given some talents according to their ability. Now the whole point of that parable is to tell us that you ought to use your your gifts, then actually Jesus could have just said, you know, there are two servants, one used the talent and one didn't. But he didn't do that in that parable. What he did was that he actually gave us not two, but three servants. And you may remember that you have the first servant who received five talents and, you know, he invested it and he made five talents more. But then you have the second servant who received two talents and he made two talents more. Now, obviously, the first servant made much more than the second servant. But what did the master say to both servants? He actually said the exact same words to both of them. And you find this in verse 21 and verse 23. And this is what he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The exact same words were given to the first and the second servant. And what does this tell us? It tells us that what God treasures is our faithfulness. That what God is looking for is our faithfulness. You know, the servants, they were commended not for being good and successful. They were not commended for being good and productive, but for being good and faithful. In this regard, it actually helps us to see that what God is looking for is the disposition of our hearts. What He's looking for is faithfulness in our service and whether we serve others to bring glory to Him. And it's important to notice that, you know, serving is not just for the leaders of the church. It's not simply for those who are more righteous. It's not simply for those who are more holy. In fact, it's serving is for all of us. You know, when it comes to serving, you know, there's always a danger. And that's the danger of works, righteousness. You know, there's the view that you think that you're not righteous enough to serve God. And if that's the case, then you are buying into the lie, then service is based on your holiness, you know, that you have not gotten there in terms of your holiness. And so you need to buck up and, and reach there in terms of your righteousness before you're able to serve. But on the other hand, there's the opposite danger and there's the opposite danger of thinking that you're righteous enough to serve God in whatever ministry. And in both of these instances, what we find is that serving comes from trusting in your own righteousness that is about our righteousness, that is about our own personal holiness. But what we find in Scripture is something different. What we are called to do is to have a spirit... Of servanthood, that we are called to imbibe the spirit that John the Baptist had in John chapter 3, verse 30, that he must increase, but I must decrease. And the way to get there is by remembering what our identities actually are, what our fundamental identities are, and that is we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I know sometimes, you know, when the presider is up here and he says, brother this and sister this, you know, we kind of chuckle at that. But what they're doing is that they're actually affirming our primary identity. They're reminding us that we are actually brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, Jesus is the chief shepherd and all of us, we are a part of his flock. So that is our fundamental identity, not deacons and then the rest of the people, not elders and then the rest of the people, or pastors and the rest of the people, but fundamentally, all of us are brothers and sisters in Christ. And once we see that, we'll come, we'll appreciate how it's not about being over one another, but it's about serving in different ways from one another. Now, a Christian thinker, Francis Schaeffer, he once said this famous line, there are no little people and no big people in the true spiritual sense, but only consecrated and unconsecrated people. There are no little people and no big people in the true spiritual sense, but only consecrated and unconsecrated people. God is the one who gives us the gifts and he's the one who consecrates us, who sets us apart for service. And once we see that, there's actually no room for pride. There's no room for arrogance because somehow, you know, as if, you know, I have more abilities than other people and therefore there's a place, there's a room, there's a place for me to boast about my abilities. Rather, at the end of the day, we recognize that all of us poor and it enables us to serve out of the abundance of grace that we have received from God. Now finally, what's the grand purpose of serving? This brings us to our final point and I promise it will be brief. Now let's look at verses 12 to 14. This is what Paul says, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul is telling us that the purpose of serving is to build up the body of Christ so that we may reach spiritual Maturity, And this is why he says that we are to no longer remain as children, but we are to be spiritually mature. And what does this look like? Well, he gives us in verse 15, you know, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. And so what he's saying is this, that the goal of serving is for us to grow in spiritual maturity so that we may look Like Jesus Christ, that the whole point is to conform us to the image of Christ. Now, what does this mean? It means two things. Number one, it means that we are spiritually immature. It means that we are spiritually immature. It means that we are immature apart from the church, apart from the body of Christ. Because if you are already mature, then what's the need for the church? You know, why would we need the church. The whole point of serving in the context of a community is so that we may no longer be children. And in fact, the NIV uses the word infants. And it's interesting that Paul actually uses the word we. He says we may no longer be infants. So Paul is including himself in this we. Now, if Paul is spiritually immature, then what about us? What about all of us as Christians? You know, if Paul is an infant, we are probably like, I don't know, two or three seconds old or something like that. Now, uh, we need to recognize this, that being an infant is not bad, okay? Being an infant means that you have the potential to grow. But what is bad is staying as an infant. The problem is staying as an infant, now, when you look at a baby, you know that a baby is not quite able to discern. If you give him two two items in front of him, one looks horrible, but but actually tastes very good. But what? And the other thing that is bright and beautiful, but it's actually plastic. Do you, which one do you think the baby will go for? <laughs> the baby will just go for the whatever looks nice. And this tells us that you know babies are not quite able to discern. And if that's, the, if that's the case, it also helps us to see that spiritual infants are not able to discern. And this is the reason why t- uh, Paul tells us that spiritual babies are susceptible to every wind of doctrine, you know, to all the cunning and to all the human craftiness. You know, without being in a context where we are encouraging one another, without being in a context where we are exhorting one another in what the Bible teaches, we will find ourselves swaying and being unable to stand, and this is why we need the community, and this is why we need to be in a place where we are serving one another. So, that's the first thing, and the second thing is this. Being in a community is required if we expect to grow. Being in a community is required if we expect spiritual growth. Now, if Paul is right about what he says, it means that prolonged periods of not belonging to a church is actually bad for you. It's actually bad for you spiritually. If you're not a part, if you're not a vital part of a church, then let me say this, that you shouldn't expect to grow in spiritual maturity. Now, some of us, you know, perhaps we are visitors, you know, perhaps you have been visiting this church for some time, and perhaps some of you might actually feel That you're not good enough to join the church. That you don't feel good enough to join the church. You know, I am such a spiritual wreck. You know, why should I join the church? Well, friends, this is exactly the reason why you need the church. You see, the church is not just for the self-sufficient spiritual adult, but the church is for spiritual children. The church it's not for those who are mature but it's for those who are immature the church is where you have sinners we have desperate sinners coming together to encourage one another now if this is a, if this is a surprise to you then perhaps this is the very thing that's is, this is the very barrier that prevents you from serving, that this is the very barrier that prevents you from fellowshipping with one another. Now Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he once said this in his book on life together. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. And Bonhoeffer is saying this, that We will not have breakthrough in our fellowship if we fail to recognize that we are sinners, that we are all sinners coming together to serve and care for one another. In fact, friends, I want to say this, that it's only when we acknowledge our immaturity, it's only when we acknowledge that we are in fact sinners that we can begin to serve one another. That, we, that this is our starting point and this allows us to serve out of a genuine heart and not to serve out of self-interest not to not out of a selfish heart but out of a genuine heart to serve one another you see infants infants seek their own self-interest at the expense of others but when we grow in maturity when we grow in spiritual maturity that is when we begin to seek the interest of others at the expense of ourselves. And friends, this is what spiritual brotherhood and sisterhood looks like in the household of God. And this is why serving one another is so important. The way we grow in Christ's likeness onto maturity is through serving and through caring for one another. And we do so, as one author puts it, people in need of change helping people in need of change and friends that is when we can begin to move away from ourselves and move towards other people and this is why we serve in the household of god as we come to a close you may wonder you know what's the very thing that fuels our care for one another you know what's the very thing that fuels our service to one another. You know, if what we are looked at is real, you know, if our own tendency is to look out for ourselves and to gain a a name for ourselves, then what is the solution? You know, how can we serve one another out of a genuine heart? What what the Bible calls us to do is to find it in the gospel and to find it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells us that Tells us about what Jesus did in his incarnation. He tells us in verses six to seven that Jesus was in the form of God, and yet he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter twenty, verse twenty-eight, that he is the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what does this mean for all of us? What this means is this, that we are so messed up, that we are so destitute as sinners, that, re- that it requires nothing less than the humiliation of the Son of God to save all of us. It requires nothing less than Jesus Christ humiliating Himself to save all of us. Jesus Christ came to serve And He did so at the greatest expense to Himself by dying on the cross. And He did so willingly because He loves us. And that is why He did. Why He did. And we need to recognize that Jesus laid down His life, not just for us as individuals, but He laid down His life for His church. And so we need to recognize that. And when this becomes a reality for all of us, a living reality in all of our hearts, it changes the way we look at one another. It changes the way we relate to one another. We will find ourselves reflecting the very heart of God to our fellow brothers and sisters. And the way we do so is by serving one another and by serving together. And may God help us as we build up His church his glory and for his glory alone. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for everything that you have given to us. And we thank you for your grace in Jesus that came to us at such a great cause, Lord. And we recognize that we are still immature, that all of us are still immature like spiritual babies. But Father, we pray that you help us to not remain as infants, Would you help us to grow into maturity and help us to see that we need to be in the community called the church for that to happen? And Father, I pray that you'll help all of us to see the role that all of us can play, that each one of us can play, so that your church may be built up for your glory. And Father, we pray that you'll shape us so that we may look more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.